Oh, hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Anna Lemke. She's a psychiatrist who is chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford University and an author. Dopamine is a key neurotransmitter in our reward pathway. It tells us when to feel pleasure and pain, it can cause depression and anxiety, and it's being hijacked by the modern world. Phones, video games, porn, food, our world is filled with cheap dopamine, which in turn is making us miserable. Expect to learn how dopamine creates a seesaw balance of pleasure and pain, why cravings to use your phone are driven by dopamine, the truth about dopamine detoxing, how to reset your brain's balance, the most successful interventions for changing your relationship to dopamine long-term, and much more. This is one of the most fundamental uh, levels of understanding that I think everyone needs in the modern era. This is the chemical which is being manipulated the most by the hyper-convenient, super-abundant world that we have about us. And yeah, it's like children in school need to be taught this. They need to understand what dopamine is, how it plays a role in their lives, and how to control it. The excesses of pleasure end up causing us pain. And that paradox is something that I totally didn't realize. There is so much to take away from today. I really, really hope that you enjoy it. If you do, and you want to meet some other people who are also interested in the same things as you, like life hacks and productivity and optimization and culture and sense-making and learning new things, join the Modern Wisdom Locals community modernwisdom.locals.com. Over a thousand people have already joined and we're having some awesome conversations on there. There's discussion threads about every episode and you get to make new friends and also have conversations that you don't need to worry about being cancelled for. modernwisdom.locals.com. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com modern. That's netsuite.com modern to get your own KPI checklist 
today. If you want more focus in your life, or if you find yourself dealing with an energy slump in the middle of the day where you just don't have the motivation to stay productive, fear not, because I do too. Which is why I spent more than a year creating the world's first productivity energy drink, Newtonic. Honestly, I'm so proud of this. I was involved in the design stage from the very beginning, and we made sure to only include the most heavily researched and evidence-based ingredients in the world at efficacious doses to create the most potent fuel for your focus ever made. It uses a science-backed formula of nootropic ingredients, including cognizin for focus, panax ginseng to reduce distractions, and L-theanine to remove any jitters and keep you feeling great. We've got thousands of five-star reviews, and you can see exactly why by trying it for yourself right now with free next-day delivery on Amazon Prime in the UK and the USA. Simply head to newtonic.com slash modernwisdom. That's N-E-U-T-O-N-I-C dot com slash modernwisdom. But now it's time to learn about dopamine with Anna Lemke. It's like one of those buzzwords at the moment. I've seen dopamine fasting and dopamine detoxes thrown around YouTube a lot. And we're talking about imbalances in the brain. Is it chemical? Is it environmental? What's your favorite framework for explaining what dopamine is and how it affects us? Well, my framework for communicating the role that dopamine has in our brain, um, it really has to do with the fact that pleasure and pain are processed in the same part of the brain. Um, it's a part of the brain called the reward pathway. And pleasure and pain effectively work like opposite sides of a balance. So when we do something pleasurable, that balance tips to the side of pleasure, and we get a little release of dopamine in our brain's reward pathway, which is reinforcing and, and feels good. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped for very long to the side of pleasure or pain. And the brain will work very hard to restore a level balance or what's called homeostasis. But importantly, the way that the brain brings that balance back to a level resting state is first by tipping it an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's where, when our brain downregulates our own dopamine production and our own dopamine transmission, not just back to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels to this dopamine deficit state. Now, if we wait long enough, you know, that's that feeling of wanting another piece of chocolate, just one more video game, another drink. If we wait, that passes and our balance is restored. But if we continue to um, repeatedly expose ourselves to highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, then over time, that initial stimulus gets shorter and weaker but that after response gets stronger and longer, which is why typically we need more of a drug or more potent forms over time to get the same effect. And furthermore, what can end up happening is our, our balances can kind of get stuck on the pain side where we end up, I like to think of it as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of our balance, kind of camping out there. If we bombard our brains with so much dopamine, that our brains have to compensate by way down-regulating our own dopamine production and transmission, then we end up in this chronic dopamine deficit state where nothing else is enjoyable, we're only focused on our drug of choice, 
we need to keep using not to feel good, but just to restore a level balance and feel normal. And when we're not using our drug, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. What is the sensation of dopamine? How would you describe what it feels like for someone to have it and not have it? Well, dopamine fluctuates around this tonic baseline. So we're always um, releasing dopamine at sort of a constant steady rate. And it's really the way it fluctuates up and down below this baseline level that affects the way we feel. Typically, when it rises above baseline levels and we have more dopamine in our reward pathway, we feel good. We can feel really, really good. We can feel even euphoric. Or sometimes it's just a sense of calm well-being or a sense of not being anxious. Um, so it's all of those things wrapped into one. Whereas when dopamine goes below baseline, again, we feel restless, we feel anxious, we feel like something's missing in our life, um, and we have a lot of incentive and motivation to use that drug again in order to not just recreate that good feeling, but also just bring us back to a normal homeostasis. Why do we have a dopamine balance? Is it adaptive? Well, it has been adaptive for most of human existence. If you think about it, our, our brains were evolved to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And that's been conserved over millions of years of evolution as we've lived in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. But the problem is that now we no longer live in that world. We live in this world of overwhelming abundance and we're very insulated from all kinds of painful experiences <clears throat> such that what was once adaptive is no longer so. So I think that we really need to rethink the way that we live in this highly dopamine overloaded world. Why is it? So if that's the case, if, if it's the case that we feel calm sometimes at a moderate increase of dopamine and we feel comfortable, does that not mean that trying to feel calm and comfortable all of the time is inherently a wasted effort because you're going to go back to baseline eventually? Is that something that we can't chase? We can't be in that sort of calm, comfortable situation all the time? Yeah, I mean, you've really intuited what is essentially the bottom line of uh, the way that pleasure and pain are processed in our brain, that really any kind of for any kind of reward seeking, there is a cost, and that cost is the come down and the pain, and that the harder we try to uh, be in that place of comfort and reward, the larger the price that we'll pay, the greater the dopamine deficit state, such that ultimately there is futility um, in seeking out reward for its own sake. Is there a different dopamine set point for each person? Is that a tolerance or degrees and dopamine releases? Yeah, it's a great question. And there, there, are, there is some science uh, around this. Um, so, for example, this pleasure-pain balance metaphor sort of assumes that we all start off with the same level balance, but it's probably not true. Um, there are probably people who, uh, you know, metaphorically start off with a balance that's tilted slightly to the side of pain. That could be because of people who live with chronic pain. That could be people with depression. Uh, there are studies showing that people with depression probably have lower baseline dopamine levels or might be less sensitive to um, typical rewards and might need more of certain types of rewards in order to get their dopamine to rise up above baseline levels all of which potentially makes those people more vulnerable to the problem of addiction as they seek out rewards to just feel normal, not necessarily, you know, feel good. 
<coughs> Why is it that people that are in chronic pain don't find pleasure superbly easily then? If you're saying that it's one side of the same seesaw, the people that are in chronic pain should be able to feel amazing off just a tiny little glimpse of something that's nice. Is that not the way it works? No, remember, one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to preserve homeostasis. So it wants to go back to whatever that baseline is, and it will work very hard to do that. I mean, there are, you know, evolutionary just so stories for, for why that is. But essentially, a person with chronic pain who starts out in pain, their physiologic system will want to return to that baseline. So, for example, if they take an opioid to try to get out of pain, that will initially work. But over time, they'll need more and more of that opioid to get the same effect. And ultimately, the initial response to the opioid will get weaker and shorter in duration. And the after effect, and this is really probably the most fascinating aspect of this pleasure pain balance, is that after effect gets stronger and longer. So with repeated exposure to the same or similar pleasure stimulus, we end up in a deeper def dopamine deficit state. It, it lasts longer. It goes further down. So a person with chronic pain has to experience that pain below, even beyond their baseline pain before returning to their baseline pain. So in other words, there's no free lunch. What goes up must come down. And if you start out in chronic pain, you're also subject to the same problems of tolerance, needing more and more to get the same effect, and the dependence and withdrawal, which are essentially this dopamine deficit state. It's a vicious asymmetry. The fact that you That's need right. more and more to gain less and less pleasure, but the more and more will incur an even larger power law return of depression and feeling bad on the other side. That's exactly right. I love that. I love your terminology of a vicious asymmetry. And, you know, when we think about why on earth would Mother Nature do that to us, it seems so cruel. But if you think about it from the perspective of millions of years of evolution and that for most of humanity, we've lived in this very dangerous world um, with very limited resources, and we've had to work very hard to get those resources in order to survive, it makes perfect sense, right? If you have a pleasure-pain balance, which with a single exposure will give you just a little bit of pleasure, but then afterwards will give you pain, then you're going to be very motivated to keep going and find that next oasis or find that next berry bush. We, you know, it's what has turned us into these constant seekers, never happy with what we have, always wanting more, except that our ability to be constant seekers and always improve on our lives and on our circumstance has essentially allowed us to transform the world. This is really you know, we're living in the Anthropocene in the sense that this is the first time in human history that we have used our brains and our technology to create more abundance than we could ever need or ever want. And not just abundance, these highly addictive, highly reinforcing feel-good drugs and behaviors, essentially making us all vulnerable to addiction because our primitive wiring wasn't adapted for the modern ecosystem. Have you heard the quote, after copulation, the devil's laughter can be heard? <laughs> I haven't, but that's good. <laughs> because a lot of men report, uh, how would you say, acute post-coital depression um, yeah. is mm -hmm. something that after guys have sex, sometimes you feel a bit existentially once you've yeah. finished up. I can't remember. It was someone, like, 
far too important and impressive. Like Jung, Jung said, <laughs> after after copulation, the devil's laughter can be heard. It sounds so apocalyptic, but that was something that I thought that was interesting. Why, after something that's so enjoyable, does something occur afterward that is a bit unenjoyable? And it's because if you only ever had sex once, then you probably wouldn't have very many grandkids. And we are grandchildren optimizing machines. So the sex just being a little bit more uncomfortable or dissatisfying than you thought, that meal just being a little bit more unfulfilling than you'd anticipated, those things, they make you want to go again. Yes, although let's tease this apart a little bit because I think there might be, I would wonder when that that quote was said because it does get to the issue of sex addiction and pornography and kind of a nice segue, which I think is important to talk about. Because I think it's a huge and growing problem, and we don't talk about it enough. So as long as you're comfortable going there. Um, Take me there, Anna. Take me. Okay, all right. So, I mean, you know, when we have an orgasm, it releases a huge amount of neurotransmitters in our brain, in- including dopamine. It is, in and of itself, a, a chemical reinforcement. Um, you know, whether we're having sex with another person or sex with ourselves, the orgasm is reinforcing And we do develop tolerance to that reinforcing effect. So if we repeatedly have orgasms over a short period of time, they will be less reinforcing with each subsequent orgasm. And there's, of course, this natural refractory period, too, where it becomes even impossible to have an orgasm um, if, if we're condensing so many orgasms in a short amount of time. So orgasms can very much work like a drug. And I think, um, you know, in the modern world, where sex is almost the last bastion of physical things that we still do, where we are in our bodies and connecting with our bodies, it has become become a really vulnerable place for sex addiction. Um, so when I think about you know the devil's laughter after after orgasm or intercourse, um, especially and you you say for men, but I guess this could include women. Um, I think where that's probably amplified is when sex is just an end in itself and it's not um, you know, an expression of intimacy and love between loving partners, but it's really um, a way to get an orgasm. And, and I think you know, w- when sex becomes that and, and only purely that, especially in large quantities, then it really becomes um, all about the dopamine and it, it becomes about that release um, divorced from other meaning and then, of course, we're going to go into that dopamine deficit state, and it's going to be even more so um, than if we were, let's say, having sex um, less frequently and only in a way that's kind of sa- sacred or sanctified. So maybe that's a little bit too holier than thou. But those are sort of my thoughts on it. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. What I think is interesting is when we've got two elements going on here. You have the experience and the subsequent physiological impact and the experience, the phenomenological experience of of that impact. But after that event, you have the retrospective psychological way that you label the experience overall. That's the thing that I think is really, really interesting. What does it mean to think back on a situation that you had and to frame that in a different way to feel shame or guilt or envy or Mm -hmm. dissatisfaction? Right. this interpretation, how, how does this, how does that slot in? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's exactly right. That that's, that's what I'm trying to get at, but you said it even better. Um, I mean, the, the meaning that we give to 
that sexual act has a huge impact on how we feel about it, how we feel about ourselves. Um, you know, sex itself, I mean, as you go through life, the, the more orgasms you have, it really is like a drug. You just, we inevitably build up tolerance. We need more and more potent forms to get the same effect. You know, the, the classic trajectory of my sex addicted patients is that they might start out masturbating to sort of, you know, vanilla college girl pornography. And then 10 years later, you know, it's, it's something much more deviant than that, some sadomasochistic thing. And it's not really because they're, they're violent people or they have a preference for that innately. It's that they need some, something more to, you know, jazz it up because they become tolerant. And, you know, and that's, and we're living longer now, you know, than we ever did before. Like when we died at 30, it was like, well, you only had a limited amount of time to get enough sex in there. And now, why, gee, we're why is it that everyone isn't addicted to sex then? If that's the case, if yeah. over time, the more orgasms that you have, the more that you need to be able to get the same level of pleasure from them, surely that just puts everybody on a path to sex addiction, but not everyone has that. No, not everyone has that because part of what makes somebody addicted is how hard they're willing to work for their drug. So my neuroscience colleague, Rob Malenka, he once summarized that beautifully. He does a bunch of animal studies and he said, yeah, you know, basically I can measure how addicted a rat is by how, how hard it's willing to work to get cocaine, how many times it's willing to press that lever, you know, to get a little squoosh of, of cocaine. And that's really what separates people who become addicted to a given drug from those who don't. At some point, most of us kind of tire out. They say, you know what? It's not worth it. Like chasing that all around, I'm done. Oh, it's so not there's, worth a, there's a cost-benefit analysis that's going yeah. on along with the pleasure-pain dynamic. Yes, 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 yes. And, and those people who are like, relentlessly trying to oppose those neuroadaptation gremlins and bring that balance, not just level, but tweak it down to the side of pleasure and they'll just keep at it until they can do that. Those are the people who become addicted. Plus, don't forget there's inter-individual variability in drug of choice. So what works for one person is not going to work for another person. I mean, as I talk about in the book, I got addicted to romance novels. I started with the Twilight Saga and I eventually, you know, over time graduated to socially sanctioned pornography for women, which is these erotica novels, not consistent with my values, really embarrassing to talk about. But, you know, I didn't really see it as it was happening. I sort of only once I sort of got to, you know, 50 shades of gray at two in the morning, I was like, why am I reading this? You know, and then I stopped and I went through withdrawal. and It was really hard for me to stop that I could really see that I had become addicted. But interestingly, I've never been tempted by alcohol. It makes me tired and gives me a headache. Caffeine, I would love if caffeine woke me up. It doesn't do a thing for me. So you've got to take into account that we've got these different types of drugs that work slightly. And, and on a population level, totally makes sense, right? You would want on a, like a, your tribe, you would want one guy to be out there, you know, chasing raspberries and you would want someone else looking for meat and somebody else rounding up, you know, uh, I don't know. So we, ha partners. we have a small amount of variability in what are the, the things that get us going? What are the addictions, the small sorts of addictions that we have? And that's adaptive at a group level because it spreads the pursuits so that you um, have a, a hedge. One person's getting right. fruit, one person's getting vegetable, one person's yeah. having sex all day. Yeah. 
I think so. I mean, I think so. You know, that makes that, a lot of sense. Uh, I yeah. have a, I have a confession to make with regards to okay. the the dark romance stuff. I'm on the cover of about 15 dark romance novels. So, oh my goodness! <laughs> you, depending on what what era it was, you may have read a book that's got my face on it. Um, I probably have. I've which been would through be, many of them. Which would be a first. <laughs> which is super embarrassing. Look, we're all friends here, Anna. All right, so what what else is there? What about serotonin? Is there a role for serotonin to play? Are there any other chemicals that we need to understand to kind of give us a full picture? Yeah, so serotonin is really interesting. Um, I think you know it's it's really associated with feeling connected to other people, that feeling of belonging, being part of the tribe. If you look at drugs like LSD, basically what they do is they cause a huge surge of serotonin, um, you know, in these limbic structures in the brain. And people will often report this kind of um, connectivity, um, forgetting the self, um, feeling, you know, this peace and, and this closeness, which is, of course, a really um, wonderful wonderful feeling. So again, you know, all these drugs work in a, in a slightly different way. Norepinephrine, also a very potent monoamine neurotransmitter, which is really important, not just to enhance mood, but also for paying attention. So stimulants um, often work on this norepinephrine um, uh, pathways and on norepinephrine, and they get our frontal lobe really, really focused, and we get really good at sort of automatic kinds of rote tasks. So all of these chemicals are involved, but interestingly, the final common pathway for all addictive substances and behaviors is dopamine. Um, and, you know, that, that, that it's essentially the currency that neuroscientists use to kind of measure the addictive potential of something. Is dopamine detoxing legit then? You know, I think so. I, I was doing it in my practice long before it became popular in social media. I've been practicing psychiatry for 25 years. And um, it was something that I just sort of happened along early on. I would have patients come in primarily seeking help for depression and anxiety. And early on, I would prescribe them antidepressant or do psychotherapy. Many of them who were also actively using drugs and alcohol didn't really get much better. Then what I discovered, and this is also informed by the neuroscience, because um, some studies show this too, that if instead of trying to initially target their depression and anxiety, I got them to stop their drug of choice, what happened was, and I asked them to do that for 30 days, so a 30-day abstinence trial. Um, in the first 14 days, they felt much worse because they were experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal. But by 30 days, they really almost universally endorsed, endorsed feeling better than they had in a really long time, less anxious less depressed, better able to sleep. And when you look at that from the perspective of the neuroscience of addiction, it really makes sense because essentially what's happening is that the substance itself is driving the depression and anxiety. That huge release of dopamine, the reward pathway is invariably followed by a decrease in dopamine transmission below baseline, that dopamine deficit state, which is experienced as anxiety and depression. Then we reach for our drug again because we're feeling bad and temporarily it feels like it alleviates that. So it's like, oh, this is making me feel better. I should keep doing this. But in fact, the drug itself is what is driving that dopamine deficit state that makes us anxious and depressed in the first place. So the intervention is to stop using the drug, allow your own dopamine transmission and other feel-good hormones to upregulate. And then if you go back to using your drug of choice, make sure that you use it in moderation 
and that you don't press too hard on that pleasure side of the balance so that you don't end up in that dopamine deficit state. What else should people do? Let's say that someone wants to do a good dopamine detox other than abstaining from whatever the behavior or the drug is that they're currently addicted to. What else do you advise them to do during that period? Well, you have to also beware of triggers um, and also eliminate those triggers. So if you're somebody who's addicted to video games, like a patient of mine, and you find that once you go on YouTube and you start watching other people play video games, you're more likely to play a video game yourself, then you should probably eliminate YouTube for that month. If you're somebody who's trying to quit smoking cigarettes and you find if you have a casual drink with friends, you really want to smoke a cigarette, you should probably eliminate alcohol for that month as well. And from the perspective of neuroscience, it makes a lot of sense because we don't just get a release of dopamine with our drug of choice. We also get a release of dopamine with any reminder of our drug of choice. So for example, my patient addicted to video games, when he watches other people play video games, that actually releases a little bit of dopamine in his reward pathway. And he feels he feels a dopamine surge. But right after that, it goes into a dopamine deficit state. He feels craving. And that craving is the physiologic drive that sends him to want to go and play the video game, which is why, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous often talks about avoiding people, places and things in that time when you're trying to avoid the drug as well. What's happening in the brain when we get a cue and a craving? What's going on? So when we get a cue for our drug of choice, that is a rem any kind of reminder of the drug, like an alert on our phone that someone texted us, we get dopamine released in our reward pathway. So that in itself is rewarding. But that reward is followed by a dopamine deficit state. And that dopamine deficit state, remember, that is craving. That is what makes us then want to go out and get the drug. It's the deficit that drives the motivation, which is why people often talk about dopamine as not really being just about pleasure. It's also about motivation because it's that dopamine deficit state and that balance to the pain side that is an incredibly powerful physiologic drive that gets us to do the work to get our drug. Mm. What does social media and technology do to our dopamine levels? Have you looked at this? Yeah, so social media is essentially has drugified human connection. We are evolved over millions of years to want to connect with other people. We are tribal creatures, we're social animals. Um, my colleague Rob Malenka recently showed that oxytocin, the love hormone, when it's released, binds to dopamine neurons in the reward pathway and causes a release of dopamine. It's not really a surprise to most of us. We are motivated to connect and our, our brain gets us to do that by releasing dopamine so it feels good to connect. That means that all of those meta experiences that tell us we're making a connection also release dopamine. So we, we have a dopamine release when people like us. We have a dopamine release when people agree with us. We have a, a dopamine release when people um, you know um, enhance our reputation. We have a dopamine release when we're experiencing the same emotion at the same time as other people. So that's very powerful, which is why social media can really be like this frenzy because when we are getting outraged at the same time as somebody else, that releases dopamine. When we're laughing at the same time as somebody else, that releases dopamine. When we watch somebody watching a video and we have the same reaction as they have to that video, that releases dopamine which explains the mystery of why we would ever want to watch people watching other people. But it makes perfect intuitive sense. Reaction the videos explained. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. But what social media has, unfortunately, the potential to do is actually drugify 
human connection by contributing to all of the features that make something addictive. And that is access, quantity, potency, and novelty. So if we have easy access to our drug of choice, which we do with social media, um, then we're more likely to get addicted, especially when you compare that to prior to social media, what you had to do to go out and meet people, right? First of all, you had to get off the couch. You had to go out and find the people. Most of them are going to be average looking and average interesting, right? It's not like that now. You know, you can just stay on your couch and swipe right or swipe left. Swipe left. Quantity, right? So if you think about almost all traditional drugs and alcohol, I mean, typically, eventually you run out and you got to go out and get more. TikTok never runs out. If you look at potency, how do we make things more potency? We combine, we potent, we combine two drugs together, and that's exactly what social media has done. It's combined beautiful images with sex, with gaming, uh, with gambling, um, with music, with flashing lights to make it all the more potent. And then finally, novelty. Dopamine is very sensitive to anything that's new, especially if it's something that we liked before, but it's a slight variation on that. And these AI algorithms are basically learning us, figuring out what we liked before, and then suggesting something that's similar but slightly different, which automatically triggers dopamine, automatically triggers our search and explore function, our treasure hunting function, you know, when we're off and running looking for that next slightly better thing. And then finally, uh, social media has enumerated things. It's given it numbers. And for reasons we don't fully understand, when we numerate things or when we have rankings or number of likes, that's really reinforcing. We tend to like that. Why is it that some people find certain things rewarding uh, in terms of how we interpret them? So, for instance, one person might really get G'd up by gaining followers on Instagram, but another one might be really interested in shooting people in a video game, and another one might be funny cat videos. Is this more of that genetic spread from the group, do you think, or is there something else going on? I think it's mostly um, just natural drug of choice, you know, that some people are just going to enjoy certain drugs and not others, and that there's variation in the human population. But some of it too um, has to do with our social networks. So addiction really does spread like a virus, and we're more likely to try and use drugs that people in our social network are trying and using. So if you hang up, hang out with a bunch of video gamers, you're more likely to get online, partially because it's you know socially enhancing and, and b- binds you to them, which is you know also important for people. Are behavioral interventions the only solution then? A dopamine detox and you spend time away from your drug or your activity of choice. Is it just down to behavioral interventions or is there a pharmacological solution for this? Can we can we pray the addiction away? What's going on? Yeah, so addiction really is the quintessential biopsychosocial disease, which means that we need biological interventions, psychological interventions, and social interventions. Behavioral interventions kind you know that like like a dopamine fast sort of cross all of those because biologically what we're doing is allowing reward pathways to reset themselves allowing ourselves to see, look back and see tr- true cause and effect. But also in order to accomplish that, um, we often have to change our environment or change the people that we hang out with. So it's also psychological and social. But the, that's not the only intervention. We can also use um, chemicals to help people stop using. So for example, naltrexone is an opioid receptor blocker, which can be used to treat people not just with opioid addiction, but also with alcohol addiction. Alcohol is mediated 
in part through our endogenous opioid system. So by blocking our opioid receptors, we make the alcohol less reinforcing, which means people can use it not just to help them stop drinking altogether, but actually to reduce the amount that they're drinking. And that's a really nifty tool because a lot of people don't want to stop altogether. They want to use in moderation. And when they use naltrexone, what they say is that I'm just better able to stop at two or three drinks rather than progressing to six or seven drinks. I also just want to jump in and emphasize that addiction really is a spectrum disorder, mild, moderate, and severe. And this dopamine fast intervention is only really going to work for folks who are sort of on the borderline between being addicted and being a little addicted or maybe a mild to moderate addiction in terms of just asking people to do it on their own. For people who are more severely addicted, the dopamine fast is equally important, but they probably won't be able to do it entirely on their own. They may have to go into a rehab, a residential treatment center, or they may have to be given you know, um, medications like an opioid receptor blocker in order to even make it possible for them to abstain. So I, I just really want to emphasize that. We're talking about a spectrum disorder. And my book is mainly targeting people who are a little bit addicted, um, although the, the ideas in there apply really to addiction more broadly as well. Is there a certain type of person who's more likely to become addicted or m- more likely to have multiple addictions across multiple domains? Yeah. So our innate vulnerability to addiction varies, and some people are definitely more vulnerable than others. About 50% of the risk of getting addicted is biological or inherited. So there are studies showing that if you have a biological parent or grandparent with addiction, you are at increased risk compared to the general population of becoming addicted yourself, even if raised outside of that substance using home. So there are really interesting adoption studies showing that when people with a biological parent with addiction are raised in a non-substance using home, they are at increased risk of developing an addiction themselves. Do you know if that Um, crosses domains? Do you know if someone who has an alcoholic father is more likely to be a gaming addicted son? That's very interesting. I don't think we have data on that. These data are mainly looking at alcohol use disorder in um, fathers and sons. Um, But that would be great to look into. What we speculate, though, is that this is a general vulnerability to addiction uh, rather than a specific you know, vulnerability to only one substance. And we know that because many times when people will get in recovery from one addiction, one of the dangers is cross addiction, that they'll go on to become addicted to something else. Mm. What about psychological life events? So we've got 50% of this is heritable because behavioral genetics is just this emerging immutable bastard of a field that keeps on telling everyone that perhaps the freedoms you used to think that you have they're not, quite as, <laughs> they're not quite as free as they were. Uh, what yeah. about psychological life events, stuff that happens in early childhood? Are the things that predispose us to addictions? Yeah. So there are certain types of mental illnesses that make people more vulnerable to addiction, separate from the illness of addiction itself. Um, you know, people with um, bipolar disorder are more likely to get addicted or any kind of intense emotion dysregulation, certain types of anxiety disorders, um, attention deficit disorders is uh, correlated uh, with increased risk of addiction. But not just innate uh, mental illnesses, also, um, you know, life, early life experiences like early life trauma um, and epigenetics can contribute to addiction risk. We know that people who experience significant trauma in early life are at increased risk to go to go on and develop addiction, but also other environmental factors like living in poverty increases the risk of becoming addicted. Unemployment increases the risk of becoming addicted. And then very importantly, um, 
access is really important. So if if you live in a neighborhood or a region of the country or a society where addictive substances and behaviors are more readily available, you are more likely to get addicted. And I think that's one of the most important risk factors today, but it's not it's seldom appreciated. Well, it's that Robert Plowman argument where he talks about you can have all of the genes for alcoholism, but if you're raised on a desert island that doesn't have any alcohol, it doesn't come to fruition. You can have a 100% likelihood of being an alcoholic, but if you're not raised around any alcohol, it's not happening. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the converse is true, too. You can have very little risk for uh, becoming addicted to alcohol. And yet, if you're constantly surrounded by it 24 7 and tempted and encouraged to use it, and you use enough of it, it can change your brain and you can become, become addicted to alcohol. So, so I think that that's right. Um, it, it's this interesting stress vulnerability diathesis which is true for most mental illnesses, whether it's, you know, anorexia nervosa or psychosis or addiction. It's this interplay between our innate God-given vulnerability uh, and the environment that we live in. What's, what are some of the other risk factors then? That it, loneliness, uh, you mentioned poverty is one of them. Do, does having a family or having a dog, does that make you less likely to be addicted? Have you looked at these? Yeah, yeah. So, um, in general, people who have um, intimate, supportive human connections in their lives um, are at decreased risk for becoming addicted. People who have um, meaningful work and are gainfully employed are at decreased risk of becoming addicted. People who actively participate in religious organizations are at decreased risk of becoming addicted. But again, remember, these are large epidemiologic studies. So these are from a population level. On an individual level, nobody is immune. You can have the best family and the best job and be to the most spiritual person on the planet, and you can still get addicted. What's happening with the dopamine levels to do with religion and family and connection and jobs and stuff? What's happening with the dopamine that's permitting those people to be less susceptible? Well, probably what's happening is that they're they're getting their dopamine in more adaptive ways, right? I mean, um, one of the things I talk about in the book is what are some healthy and adaptive sources of dopamine. And certainly intimate, supportive human connections is a really essential and important and healthy source of dopamine. But also um, meaning and purpose in life, you know, having work that you believe in and that keeps you busy and that you you feel like is um, valuable um, for the world. That's very important to giving people, um, you know, making them le less likely for them to get addicted. General psychological resilience really helps. And that's typically fostered by other wellness practices, like, for example, exercising um, and making sure that you're physically healthy, getting enough sleep. Um, there's a great acronym in Alcoholics Anonymous called HALT. It stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, and Tired. And it's just a nice way to warn people that when you're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, you're at risk of using your drug. So try to beware and take care of uh, those things uh, before you get to that point. That's amazing. I'm trying to work out, you mentioned about meaning and purpose there, and some of the more ephemeral, difficult to define longer term life goals. Some of these are quite conservative views, things to do with family connections and so on and so forth. A lot of the time what people are trying to chase, whether it be through internet use or drug use or finding a new game or getting themselves into a community of some kind or whatever it is, 
Uh, they're, they're trying to chase some sense of pleasure. And if dopamine yeah. is the primary key pleasure-giving hormone that we have in our brain, hormone, chemical? Yeah, chemical, neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitter, yeah. Uh, I knew that. If that's, the, <laughs> if that's the case, starting afresh, trying to really step back from the urgent day-to-day -day things that you're doing with your life and actually trying to connect to a deeper sense of purpose that must be one of the most robust ways that you can actually ensure that you have a scalable, continuous sense of pleasure throughout the remainder of your life to try and find and really, really genuinely deeply connect with the things that you are doing. And it seems like what we have in a hyper-convenient world is a very shiny object that sits over the top like a shiny glaze that people continue going back to that doesn't allow us to get to the much more replicable uh, and consistent, deeper meaning that you get underneath. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. I, I, you know, I, the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake ultimately leads to anhedonia or the absence of pleasure in anything that we do. And so on some level, pursuing pleasure is a mistake. I mean, we're constantly being told that we should pursue pleasure and that there's pleasure out there waiting for us and that if we're not happy or, you know, ecstatic, then something's wrong with us. We need to get new friends or a new job or a new spouse. But the truth is that, that again, just this relentless pursuit of pleasure actually makes us miserable. And what we need to do is stop looking for it, stop looking for that dopamine hit and essentially try to find a way of being in the world that isn't primarily focused on rewards, but instead, um, you know, fosters a different meaning and purpose um, uh, for being. And you, you know, you hit on it exactly. I mean, people get, can get this in different ways, but, you know, finding a sense of, of purpose in the world or, you know, a reason for living, typically this is living for others um, that can really, make us feel like it's all worth it without necessarily making us feel that we're experiencing pleasure. But, but really almost more that we can endure the pain of being alive because being alive is actually pretty painful and that it's worth it. It's worth sticking around for, um, because, you know, we want to be here to accomplish some, some greater goal, or we have, we believe that we have a, some meaning and purpose in life. So I do, I do really think that that's really important and that we need to shift our whole frame around, um, you know, this mirage really of the pursuit of pleasure. Unfortunately, it is the natural byproduct and the, and the dark side of capitalism. You know, a successfully capitalist society will ultimately tell us that the highest good is to consume and uh, that the more we consume and the better the stuff that we get um the happier we'll be and of course so that's it's not true is dopamine related to the hedonic treadmill then oh absolutely i mean it's fundamentally related right because if we just this, this relentless pursuit of dopamine hits ultimately drives down our own endogenous production of dopamine and we end up um, less happy than where we started whereas the pursuit of pain and i use that that term very broadly to mean not just physical pain although i include that too but also just doing things that are hard and inconvenient and require effortful engagement 
those are the things that lightly press on our pain side and ultimately cause our own endogenous re-regulating mechanisms to upregulate dopamine and norepinephrine and serotonin, all those feel-good hormones, but not with the initial stimulus. They're the delayed reward as the compensatory or healing mechanism for the initially painful stimulus. The brain's managed to turn everything into a drug, hasn't it? The, the end result, the net end result of everything is neurotransmitters and different levels. So whether that be buying the 200,000 pounds car and then thinking, oh, well, that one hasn't quite got, but the 250,000 pounds car, that's right. A, and it'll be once I get the new lights in the driveway and then when I upgrade the house and when I do, and that is just the dopamine system playing out in real life. Like when people talk about the fact that keeping up with the Joneses, what is that? It's the dopamine system existing in the real world, manifesting in people's purchasing behaviors. Yes, exactly. I mean, you're exactly right. We created this world and it's sort of the the natural endpoint of our pleasure pain balance because we're constantly we're wired to constantly seek out pleasure and and avoid pain. But I'm I'm hopeful that it's not the end of us, although the data would suggest it just might be 70% of global deaths are attributable to modifiable risk factors, that is to say smoking, diet and lack of exercise. Um, so if we don't rapidly turn around the way that we're constantly consuming, um, then, you know, we're probably going to go extinct. We're going to sort of titillate ourselves to death. But I, I, humans are kind of amazing in their adaptability. And I am optimistic that, you know, with these kinds of conversations, um, we're going to say, okay, wait a minute, we need to change something here. Um, what, what's a new way to orient on this, as you say, hyper convenient world? Let's talk about the other side of the seesaw then. How can people utilize pain effectively or discomfort to make their lives better? There's a whole science of hormesis, and hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And the idea of hormesis is that by exposing ourselves to mild, toxic, or noxious stimuli, we can actually um, become stronger and heal. And the way that works is that um, when we expose ourselves to noxious stimuli, and examples would be extreme temperatures, um, starvation, um, exercise, exercise is a noxious stimulus at the cellular level. What that does is that sets in motion our body's own healing mechanisms, and it tells our body, oh boy, there's an injury here. You need to upregulate dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, all those feel-good hormones. And so hormesis is actually a way to press on the pain side of the balance in order to get the gremlins to hop on the pleasure side to reset the, the hedonic set point to the side of pleasure. And it really does work. And I think it is the necessary modus operandum for this dopamine overloaded world. We have to intentionally and willfully invite pain into our lives. And, and that means we need to do things like exercise, take cold water baths, um, you know, do things that are effortful and hard, expose ourselves to things that makes us make us anxious. And we have to do it on purpose. And we have to do it on a regular daily basis in order to keep our hedonic set point to the side of joy. What are some of the discomfort uh, pathways that people might not realize are? So it's something like trying to learn a new language or trying to write an article or trying to learn something. Are, th are these the same? Are there any others? Yeah, anything that requires a kind of sustained concentration. And, and by the way, that that's getting harder and harder because we're constantly interrupting ourselves with intrusive thoughts of wanting to check our devices. 
So putting all the devices away, turning off all the alerts, and just allowing ourselves to try in the moment to focus and to notice when we're interrupting ourselves, but to not let ourselves be distracted with something else and to try to stay in that moment, write it out, and then continue to concentrate. Um, that's a simple example, you know, to do something creative or to read something that's kind of difficult or learn something new, learn a language. Those are all learning is a great, great example. Um, other things can be things that are just boring, right? I mean, we're so we've sort of lost the ability to be bored. We're so constantly entertained, you know, whether it's music pumping in one direction or what have you. So just kind of letting ourselves, um, you know, in some some ways, some people call it meditation or breathing or just going for a walk without headphones in, allowing ourselves to be bored, anxious, paying attention to the constant ruminations of our own brain, which are mostly boring and annoying and negative. Um, but, you know, instead of trying to just drown them out, just saying, oh, okay, I'll be, let's be curious about that and try to learn something about ourselves and the world. Try to focus um, on the world. So I think we do so much trying to escape into a fantasy world and pay less and less attention to our immediate environments, but just try to like pay attention to the environment and tolerate the distress of being in the moment. One of the things I, I think is important to emphasize is, you know, there's this, this kind of language like be here now and be in the moment. And when I was in college, I kept trying to do that and thought I was doing it wrong because every time I would do that, I was like, "Ugh, I, I hate this feeling, you know, being here in the moment, it's, it's miserable, it's boring, it's, it's awful. And I thought I was doing it wrong somehow compared to other people because I thought, well, if I could just get this right, I would feel good. But what I finally realized is, no, being in the moment is, it's hard. It is all those awful things, including being bored and being anxious. And that's kind of the point that letting ourselves be here now and tolerate the distress of being alive is something that we need to do on purpose. What's happening in the brain? We spoke about smartphone addiction. What happens when we have that desire to check our phone? Let's say that the notification hasn't gone off, but we have a compulsion. What is that? Is that myelination? Is that just that we have a bunch of very well um, rehearsed pathways in our brain that wants us to do it? Or is there something else? Is there an imbalance? What's going on? I think basically what's happened is, you know, we've gotten into the euphoric recall loop. So people with severe addiction will often talk about euphoric recall, how their own memory of using itself becomes a trigger that then triggers cravings and drives use. And that can happen with all of us, like for example, with the phone, where suddenly, you know, we have, and part of craving is, by the way, intrusive thought. So it's not like we intentionally have the thought, the thought just barges in on our current thought process. And we can have that all the time with our phone, like, oh, uh, you know, I wonder, so this is my, we don't have alerts, so we just, oh, I wonder, I wonder who emailed me. I wonder, you know, I wonder who texted me. And then that's essentially euphoric recall. And that drives dopamine up, followed by dopamine deficit, followed by craving. And then we're really in physiologic withdrawal. And we feel like this feeling can only be resolved by my checking my phone. And indeed we check the phone and it does temporarily resolve the feeling because now we get a bigger hit of dopamine and we've, you know, restored homeostasis, but right afterwards it's going to drive it down even further, which it sets up these loops. So euphoric recall is like a self-perpetuated, self-created cue. Yes, exactly. Fuck. 
the human brain is so great <laughs> and then there's some things and you're like why is that there who put that in yeah, there that's such a stupid I feature <laughs> yes i know that's it's so true but again i just look at it from an evolutionary perspective like if you you know were sitting around you know, and you eating all the berries and like, and you just could chill out there for like a week, that would not be good, right? You would, you would probably starve to death because you wouldn't have gotten up and, and put enough effort into finding the next berry bush or whatever, running away from the lion. So I just think it's, you know, it's how we evolve for a world of scarcity. But as you say, it's really messed up for our current ecosystem. What would you give people as advice overall to keep dopamine under control let's say that someone doesn't have a outstanding use addiction maybe sometimes they spend too much time on their phone maybe sometimes when they're on a night out they struggle to not go from five drinks to ten but just a, a very sort of standard user of dopamine what are some of the ways that people can or the habits that people can take away that they can in, instantiate into their daily life yeah, well, I do recommend starting out with a dopamine fast in order to restore um, homeostatic baselines. And if you can't do a month, can you do two weeks? You know, in my experience, to really reset reward pathways, it does take a month of not using our drug of choice. But if you can't spare that, do a couple weeks. If you can't even do that, just do a single day. And notice in that day how you will go through experiences of craving, intrusive thoughts, euphoric recall, triggers. Um, how hard it is, how you'll be restless, anxious. I think just becoming mindfully aware of that process is is a, a good and helpful first step. Then when we go back to using, keep in mind the balance and the gremlins and try to use in moderation so that you don't get into this vicious cycle of too many gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance so that you're in this dopamine deficit state where you're basically net negative and you have to keep using just to feel normal. And ways to do that are to engage in pleasurable activities that are not too potent and to do it not too often so that you leave enough space in between for the gremlins to hop off and for homeostasis to be restored. Certainly once we're into daily use, um, it's much harder to keep our balance in check. And I would also add that um, a lot of times people will be like, well, I only use cannabis once a week, but I, and I only use alcohol once a week, and I only use poppers once a week. But at the end of the week, they've used something every day. So you also want to be mindful of that. And, and what we're really talking about is that you want to have two or three days every, at least every week where you're not using any kind of potent uh, rewarding behavior. And again, that's all to leave enough time for homeostasis to be restored. Um, and then you want to put, you know, self-binding strategies in place. These can be physical or metacognitive. That's things like not keeping your drug um, easily accessible in your home or, um, you know, putting your phone on grayscale. These are all things people have talked about to make it less potent or deleting certain apps um, or keeping a careful record. Anything that kind of keeps you accountable, but also puts a little bit of a pause between. A bit more friction. How, yeah, a little bit more friction exactly between you and your drug of choice. And then a metacognitive strategy that I find is really useful is telling the truth. If we force ourselves to tell the truth about what we're doing, where we've been, what we've consumed to other humans, we're much more likely to be truthful with ourselves. And also there is evidence that telling the truth, which is an active and engaging and difficult thing to do, 
um, probably upregulates or potentially upregulates the prefrontal cortex, that big gray matter area behind, behind our foreheads. And the prefrontal cortex is really important for helping us regulate our pleasure pain balance. So telling the truth about things large and small, what I call radical honesty, is really, really important for being able to delay gratification and also hold ourselves accountable, not just to our past selves, but also our future selves. Is that why vulnerability and opening up to people can sometimes inherently feel pleasurable? Yeah. So as I said before, deep human connections are a really healthy and adaptive source of dopamine. And one of the way to one of the ways to create intimacy is to be honest with people, especially when it's hard to do, especially when we're telling them something about ourselves, which casts ourselves in a somewhat negative light or makes us look, you know, not as awesome as maybe we would like to look in their eyes. And we always think that when we when we when we do that, that will like people will run away from us. But in fact, the opposite happens. People experience a shared, a sense of brokenness and a shared sense of vulnerability, and actually feel closer to us. Let's say that someone's had a behavioral addiction. It could have involved a substance, or it might not have done. It could have been phone use or smoking, and mm -hmm. they've engaged in this behavior consistently for a long period of time, and then they stop. Do those neural pathways ever disappear? Do they ever uh, atrophy or are they always there? Are we always going to have an increased level of susceptibility? The reason I ask this is I once heard a story about a young girl who used to go horse riding and when she turned 14 or 15, she started smoking when she was horse riding because her parents weren't around and they couldn't ever smell it on her because she came back stinking her horses, not smoke. Uh, and then 10 or 15 years later, she had a daughter and she wanted to take her daughter horse riding. She'd stopped smoking when she got pregnant. She'd stopped smoking when she'd had the daughter, took the daughter horse riding again, got on a horse for the first time in 15 years, immediately wanted to have a cigarette. Yeah. So is it the case that we need to be incredibly, the, the um, pathways that we lay down early in our lives are with us for the rest of time or can we actually get them to atrophy and go away? So a little bit of both. There's, there is evidence that once we become addicted to a substance or behavior, there's a latent scar of that addiction that will always be there and will never go away. And the example that you gave is, is, a, is, a, is a really good one. And what, what often happens with people with severe addiction is when they're triggered uh, or, or exposed to the drug itself or another drug that can plummet them, not just into moderate use, but right back to where they were in the deepest depths of their addiction. There's also interesting animal studies showing that if you take a rat and you inject it over um, seven successive days with cocaine, what you will find is that the rat will go from hovering on the edges of the cage to running around in the middle of the cage. And by the seventh day, it's in a running frenzy. And that can be measured by how often it, it breaks beams of light that are across the, the cage. Now, if you take that cocaine away uh, for a whole lifetime for a whole year which is essentially a rat lifetime and then you expose that same and what will happen is they'll stop running and they'll start going back to their normal behavior um, but then if a year later you expose that rat to a single injection of cocaine they'll immediately be back into that running frenzy as if they were on day seven very strongly suggesting that there's some fundamental brain change that occurs that never goes away on the other hand, although the evidence supports the idea that there are damaged areas of the brain that never heal, there's also really interesting work being done by my colleagues here at Stanford showing that recovery is characterized by building new neural 
neural pathways around these damaged areas. So recovery can happen. It can be, it's robust. People can get into recovery and be in recovery their whole lives and never relapse again. And what's probably happening is again, they're building new neural networks that reroute around those damaged areas. What I'm thinking about is the common addiction that pretty much everybody has, which is overuse of phones and that you really do set the tone for your later life with the actions that you make in your earlier life. Yes. And if it's the case that every time that you have something in your pocket that you automatically go to pick it up, to take it out, you have your apps in the position, you can almost navigate with your eyes closed Yeah. to go through these sorts of things. The implications are like really, really grave. And it sounds like they're quite, it's, we should pick up behaviors with real trepidation. Yes, I agree with you. It's why I strongly advocate that children not have their own devices until they're at least 12 or 13. Why is that? And that even, well, just as, as you say, um, you know, those are formative years. The brain is developing rapidly. The coping strategies that kids learn early in life will last them a lifetime. And if we don't in that time teach them healthy coping strategies, if we don't foster social networks with people in real life, if we don't um, teach them about, you know, how to be well with exercise and and diet and and spiritual practices, and we just give them a phone, um, that's that's going to be very bad for their ability to reverse those behaviors later on. Um So I think it's essential that, you know, kids be shielded from these devices for as long as possible. Now, once they become teenagers, they're just going to go out and get their own devices if you don't get them one. But even then, monitoring their use, um, you know, data show that that parents who are actually um, know where their kids are and what their kids are doing and what what kinds of things they're doing online, those kids are less likely to develop um, serious addictions to uh, social media and other things than than parents who are super hands off. So it does require, um, you know, careful monitoring and discussion um, early in life so that people can be mindful. But having said that, I will say that I have seen people with very severe addictions get into recovery in mid and late life. So it's really remarkable what people can reverse in terms of these incredibly addictive and reinforcing behaviors when, you know, when they, when they decide and when they have access to the resources to help them get into and maintain recovery. That's reassuring to hear. It's yeah, a, it is. A bunch of it's- a bunch of things floating around in my mind. James Clear saying, first we make our habits and then our habits make us, that yeah. every action that you take is a vote for the future sort of person that you're going to become. Yeah. And then there's a Jordan Petersonism that says, don't practice what you do not want to become. And that reminds yeah. us that each of the little individual actions are pushing us towards one particular type of future or another. And every time you do it, it's making doing it again more likely tomorrow and the next day and the next day. It's, it it really is. It doesn't surprise me that your book hit the bestsellers list because it's such a pervasive, ubiquitous problem that pretty much every person that's living in the first world now has. What, what does it mean to be in a hyper-convenient world where we can get whatever we want, where discomfort is something that we can evade at the touch of a button, where boredom is something that we can eliminate by getting anything out of our pocket? Yeah, it, um, that pleasure-pain balance has been skewed in a manner that is quite unhealthy. Yeah, I think that's right. And then on top of it all, you know, uh, data show that 
people are getting more depressed and more anxious. And the richer the nation, the more depressed and anxious we're getting. Happiness surveys show that people were uh, less happy in 2018 than they were in 2008. And then added to all that unhappiness is the guilt for being unhappy because we look around and we say, why, you know, why on earth? Like I should feel really good and yet I, I don't, I'm unhappy. And that's where I think understanding the neuroscience of pleasure and pain is super helpful because it, it's just, it makes us realize that, oh, I get it. I'm unhappy because I'm constantly surrounded by pleasure. And that pleasure is my brain is wildly trying to accommodate that fire hose of dopamine and is making me miserable as a result. And there are actionable things that we can do to reverse that. And that's what's so exciting. And we can insulate ourselves from pleasure and we can intentionally challenge ourselves and do things that are hard. So crazy to hear. We can insulate ourselves from pleasure in the pursuit of fulfillment and leading a better life. Yeah, I know. It is paradoxical, but it's real. It works. <laughs> Anna Lemke, ladies and gentlemen, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence will be linked in the show notes below. Why should people go if they want to find out more of the stuff that you do? Well, let's see. I'm not on social media, but um, .com has is sort of a website that has other information. And of course, shows like yours are you know, great, great opportunity to have great conversations. So thank you.